All right, church family online, excited to be together and excited to spend some time worshiping our Lord. So let's get after it now. Worship our King. Come, let us bow at His feet. He has done great things. See what our Savior has done. See how His love overcomes. He has done great things. He has done great things. song 
Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever say Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Oh, we live for you Sing it out
Well, hello again. Chris here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, worship team, for leading us in a time of worship. And uh, thank you again. Uh, we hope that uh, this time with us uh, is just a blessing for you and your family uh, throughout the week. Uh, well, as you know, we love praying for you. There's a lot going on in our world, and prayer requests uh, always come up. And uh, we love praying for you. So if you would like to text us your confidential prayer uh, request at 97,097000, uh, we love praying for you throughout the week. And you can text that anytime, 3 a.m. You can text that to us, and uh, we would love that. Well, there is a lot going on here. Uh, if you would like to have any information about our men's ministries, women's ministries, uh, student ministries, all the ministries that we have going on, we got tons of ministries and tons of weekly happenings. Uh, the best place to find that information is our website at agorabible.org, agorabible.org, and you can visit us there anytime. And on our website, you'll see under the Give tab, uh, you can actually make a donation. And as you know, uh, our ongoing ministry is is made because of people like you who uh, generously give, and we're so grateful for that. So you can give again under the donate tab on our website. Well, before we get into God's word today, uh, let me take a second and pray for us. Well, Father, we thank you so much for uh, the people listening online, for the families that are represented, Lord. And uh, we are so thankful that you are a God that can speak to all of us, no matter where we are. And uh, we don't take that for granted, Lord. Uh, just pray, Lord, for this time that uh, uh, your spirit will nudge us, will move us, and that we'll hear exactly what you want us to hear today. And uh, we love you so, so much, Lord. I pray that the distractions of the next few minutes will go away and uh, we can focus on your word and your spirit, Lord. We love you, and it's your name we pray, amen. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you, worship team, for giving us just a time to slow down on our week and worship the Lord. So good to be together online and have an opportunity to do that. Well, as you know, we're working our way through this book of Hebrews, and I'll be honest with you, this book's pretty intense. It's, uh, it's not for the faint of heart, and so I've really been stretched just in spending time in these passages. And so this week we're in Hebrews chapter 4, and if you have the option to uh, look at a Bible or pull out an app, it's always a blessing to be able to uh, follow along with the text. And uh, as you're doing that, as you're turning to chapter 4 in Hebrews, I'm wondering if anyone listening has been teased over the years of any weird quirks that you have, anything that people notice that you do that's just kind of different <laughs> than most people. I uh, have my best friend Joe has teased me over the years because he claims that every single time I look in the mirror, and I don't know why he's seen me or looking at me look in the mirror, which doesn't happen very often, but he says that I do this weird thing with my lip where I'm kind of checking to make sure I look okay, and I kind of, I don't know, I don't even know what he was saying, and I, I, I denied it for a number of years, and then I started to notice that he was right, and I couldn't stop doing it. Whenever I look in the mirror, I, I'm like, oh man, I'm doing that weird lip thing again. I don't, I don't know if you have a weird quirk like that, a saying that you have, some kind of a, a facial expression, a raised eyebrow. We all have something that we do unknowingly. One of the things that I've realized is some of those unknowing things also translate into our spiritual lives. We have things that we do that we don't necessarily realize that we're doing. I'll give an example of one that I think relates to our text here today that we have blinders to. It's kind of a, a common one in Christendom, is we create a hierarchy of sins. I'll explain what I mean by that, a hierarchy of sins. We elevate certain sins and we downplay other sins. It's kind of a tendency, if we're not careful, it's actually a tendency to self-protect. The tendency is to elevate other people's sins that, that we don't struggle with and to downplay our, our own. It's really, if you think about it, a defense mechanism to kind of alleviate some degree of guilt in our life. It's a hierarchy that we create that's nowhere to be found in Scripture. What we do see in Scripture, and probably the most important thing is outlined even here, is the hierarchy that Creator God puts on different sins. And if you really think about it, the only thing that matters is not our opinion about sin and what we think is worse or better than other sins. It really only matters what God Almighty thinks. 
And what I would suggest is that he actually does have a sin that he elevates above all other sins. Let me give a little background to that or explanation. You remember last week we had a chance, just as a recap, we had a chance to look at the nation of Israel and the kind of some of their disobedience, some of the different routes that they went. And one of the things that he highlights was saying and explaining that they will not experience God's rest. And when it says rest, it's not talking about a nap. It's in fact talking about an eternal destination present with the Lord in heaven. So you're first to rest and heaven kind of uh, synonymously. It's kind of one and the same. And he uses that expression that they wouldn't experience their rest. But it tells us just at the end of chapter 3, verse 19, what is the thing that determines whether they experience God's rest or not. Chapter 3, verse 19, before we start in chapter 4, says this. So we see that they, the Israelites, were unable to enter, he's talking about his rest or heaven, because of unbelief. Unbelief. You see, unbelief is the unpardonable sin. At the end of our days, when we've breathed our last breath, really what will want, the one thing that we will be graded on is belief in Jesus Christ or unbelief in Jesus Christ. Whatever your hierarchy of sins is apart from that, it really isn't going to matter because that's the one thing that's going to last in eternity is what did we do with Jesus Christ in his death as payment for our sins? That's the one thing that echoes into eternity. And as we mentioned last week is if you have embraced Jesus, you're going to see the results of that because it transforms you, it changes you, it changes the way that you live and the way that you approach life. And so there's markers of somebody that genuine believes and markers of someone that's stuck in unbelief. Let me just take a moment now just and pray before we dive into chapter four and kind of expose more and more details of this idea of the Lord's rest. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to be together and gather around your word. And we believe that something happens when we do that, that you speak to us, that you meet us. And so we're inviting that now. And even as I often pray, I pray that you'd meet people exactly where they're at, where there's conviction needed, that you'll do that, encouragement needed, that you'll do that. I pray that your word would be living and active even in this time. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So starting in chapter four, this topic of rest, kind of continuing from chapter three into chapter four, this is what he says. Our author says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. Remember talking about the Israelites. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. We'll stop there just for a moment. I want to just make sure we're crystal clear on this idea of rest. I know it's, it doesn't seem like it takes much explanation, but it's more, as I suggest, it's more than just taking a nap. I heard this last week just in my study, several different preachers as they're kind of working through this text. That was what they approached this text as, is trying to be an encouragement towards a Sabbath rest and the priority that that should have in your life. But I don't believe that that's at all what we're talking about here. In fact, the rest, although the basic idea of rest is the same, it's ceasing from work. It's kind of the idea of of pausing and stopping what you're doing for a period of time. But when you apply that to God's rest, it looks a little bit different. I like John MacArthur's definition of God's rest as no more self-effort as far as salvation is concerned. It means the end of trying to please God by our feeble fleshly works. God's perfect rest is rest in free grace. 
rest in free grace, that idea that it's no longer trying to pursue, trying to please a perfect God, but instead embracing Jesus, his finished work on the cross. And that has ramifications in our life, both uh, present day and eternal. Think about the present day rest that we experience once we have the, the weight off of our back of the tension with God. Any of you that are married recognize what I mean when I talk about uh, unresolved conflict and the weight that that weighs on you. I know with Adrian, if we're in the middle of a, some kind of a conflict, if we're in an argument, man, I'll tell you, it's the hardest thing to try to go to sleep. You're tossing and turning when you have something un, unresolved until you get a chance to talk through it, to work through it, to extend apologies, to make the relationship right again. There's that unresolved tension similar with a perfect God. Our sin has separated us from that perfect God. And we go around day after day with the weight of that tension that exists. And some of us are confused as to why we can't seem to exhale, why we can't find true rest is because we've never dealt with that primary core relationship with God. That's the offer that Jesus makes. His finished work on the cross restores that relationship and allows us to some degree to exhale and experience present day rest. Similarly, it impacts us long-term. The rest that it describes is what allows us to have peace when we say goodbye to someone that we care about that knows Jesus Christ. You know that their eternal destination is to be present with the Lord. They're no longer dealing with the things of this earth. So there's two aspects, present and future. And the good news we see in the text is it says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. In other words, that this offer for rest wasn't just back with the Israelites that we're talking about in the last chapters, not just with them. It still stands for every single one of us from each generation. We still have that offer. And so he tells us, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach us, to reach it. I think that's kind of weird when it tells you you should fear something. You're like, what is that? What is that all about? My teenage daughters kind of keep me in the loop with uh, the whole texting abbreviations. I don't know if you uh, uh, older generation have a hard time with that, trying to figure out what in the world do they mean by this, by that. The one that, that caught me that they had to give me a, an explanation was, was the word FOMO, F-O-M-O, stands up for fear of missing out. They had to explain that to me. And I think that that kind of captures the idea of what the maybe a, a high school student, my daughters, when they were going, had COVID over Christmas break and they felt miserable because they're missing out on so many different activities during quarantine. What this is, is the same idea, fear of missing out, but it's not just missing out on a good Christian life. What he's talking about is a lot more intense than that. The author is pleading with them to fear what is at stake here. The thing to fear is unbelief and the eternal consequence of that. The good news, though, is for us now just as much as it was for them. He's referring, as I said, to the same people group, the people that had been led out of Egypt, that had been rescued, that had been provided for in the wilderness, that ultimately made their way to the, the promised land. Kind of a, a, a group of people, as we saw last week, that were exposed and surrounded with God's goodness, but they never adopted it for themselves. I describe that group of people present day as cultural Christians. What I mean by cultural Christians is someone that grew up surrounded by faith, but they never adopted it themselves. What does the text say? Describes them that they are exposed to the good news, but it did not benefit them. What does that mean, did not benefit them? Why would it not benefit them? It didn't benefit them, it says in the text, because they weren't united by faith with those who listen. 
united by faith. And in other words, added to the group of generation after generation that have put their trust in Jesus Christ and have, have experienced the rescue because of his finished work on the cross. They're not benefiting from what they've been exposed to. They're just cultural Christians. That's a warning and a caution from our author. Probably the, one of the most intense passages I can point to in Scripture is in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where Jesus explains, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a similar caution that we see in today's text. It's kind of a, a, pastoral's, a pastor's heart being expressed to this group of young believers that he didn't want them to miss out on salvation because they, had, because they hung out with a religious crowd but didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. My hope is that there's no one that's even listening to this now, that that would be the description of them, that you, someone would say, yeah, I've been around the church, but I've never embraced it myself. We'll continue in the text. So the first point being is that the invitation still stands for his rest. The second point, all history has pointed to his rest. Look at verse three. It says, for we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his work. And again, in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. This section can be a bit confusing if you overthink it, but really what I believe the author is seemingly pointing to is the way that God has always pointed to salvation through the imagery of rest. If you think about it, the Jewish Sabbath, which this audience would be very acquainted with, the idea of taking a break on the seventh day, they'd be very uh, deeply aware of that because they're committed to following that to a not doing any work on the Sabbath. And that was rooted in the creation story. So even the vision and imagery of rest all the way back from God's creation was always a picture of salvation that would be offered to those who believe. Again, the promised land in Canaan was described as a place where they'd experience his rest. That was another thing pointing towards an image or something that would help them make the association between the promised land and the eternal promised land of heaven. He's making the connection, but again, reiterating what we've already seen throughout, that, that we've seen throughout this passage, that those who were disobedient would not experience. It says, they shall not enter my rest. So really, somebody that has not just a, a general belief, not just an intellectual assent, but only somebody that has genuinely placed their faith in Jesus Christ would experience the rest that he's offering. Continue in verse six. It says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long as afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Pause there for a moment. Basically, it says that there's the option to remain for some to enter into it. This rest is an ongoing invitation. 
So this passage is interesting because it's both a warning and a caution not to miss out on something, but it's also a reminder that whenever there's still a day ahead of us, there's still the option to enter his rest. He's making the point that many years after the Israelites missed out on God's rest in the, in the land of Canaan. You remember the guys wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and, and God's like, none of you because of your disobedience are going to enter into the promised land. But he is explaining just because they missed their opportunity to experience God's rest doesn't mean that it isn't carried on today. That's the point that he's making, that Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land wasn't the final offer for us to enter in. So he says, it remains for some still to enter in. It's still an option for us. The day of opportunity hasn't left, but he cautions us against something that keeps us from experiencing that, that rest. He says, you have to keep from hardening your hearts. Interesting, that repeated theme from last week's passage into this week's passage as well, because anybody that does any kind of inner kind of inventory recognizes that heart is really where it all begins, where we decide, where we choose whether we embrace or reject Jesus Christ. It comes down to heart issues. And what he's cautioning them against is a hardened heart. The opposite of that is a soft heart, a tender heart. I love here in our children's ministry, my wife is the coordinator of that. We have lots of opportunities for kids to be exposed to Jesus Christ. And on occasion, we even provide the opportunity for kids to respond to the gospel. And it's so cute to see uh, kind of how kids process the invitation uh, to come to Jesus and if they want to accept him as their savior. And even just this uh, last summer at Camp ABF, seeing so many kids come forward and kind of debriefing that a little bit with my wife uh, afterwards. She's just like, man, it's so cool. Even though a bunch of the kids, she's like, really, every single time I give the opportunity for them to respond, some of these kids are like up there, the same kids every single time. They're like, I'm in, I'm in. And I, at first I'm like, oh man, it, that kind of keeps us from knowing who's the first time decision and who's not. And then she's like, you know what? I'm more happy just seeing that they have soft hearts. That they're, that they're open to it. They haven't allowed life to harden them over the years. They're still receptive to this amazing news that God has provided rescue through Jesus Christ. So here he warns us, he points to the fact that there still remains a day and an opportunity for us to receive. I think it's cool that he points out and emphasizes the word today. The word today is the idea of urgency that, listen, there's always still today, but here's the question mark is when do our todays run out? So it's kind of a mixed bag where you're like, man, that's awesome news. It's still not too late. But the challenge of that is the other side of the coin is there's always today, but the question mark is when do we run out of our todays? When do they wind down? For us, every single day, we should see, even as we have people that we care about and love, there's a, another opportunity to extend the love of Jesus Christ to somebody. I would love for us to have the same commitment. He's describing here uh, multiple generations from this generation to this generation, to this generation, every single one of them has had the offer, uh, the offer extended to embrace Jesus Christ. Make sure that we have the same mentality of extending that and not ever giving up on somebody because every single day is a new opportunity. Continue in verse 11. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It's kind of an interesting statement. We'll talk about that in a moment. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And listen to verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Pretty intense section of scripture, very powerful 
The first thing that he calls us to there in verse 11, he says, strive to enter that rest. To me, upon first reading that, I'm like, man, that seems kind of weird. Usually when you, you strive, it's like two opposing ideas, strive or rest. Like which one is it? But here's the thing that we have to understand. Saving faith is effortless in one sense, that it's even something that a child can do, but it requires diligent perseverance in another sense. Let me explain it. It takes intentionality. All of us know that are all of us that are easily distracted understand this, that it takes intentionality to maintain our focus on Jesus, especially when there's so many competing things for our attention. So here he's saying, let us therefore strive, work on it, pursue it, intentional about this relationship. Otherwise, look at the alternative if we don't so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What same sort of disobedience? The, he keeps referring back to the Israelites in the 40 years in the wilderness during their testing. They kept having opportunity where God would rescue, would provide, he'd care for them. They'd slip back into a disobedience. That's the same thing he's describing. He's using that parallel for us. That without intentional pursuit, you will slip back into it. Jesus explains or gives the similar charge in Luke chapter 13, verse 24. When he's speaking, he said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. There's a certain degree of perseverance in the life of a Christ follower. The same is described here as, a, as something that you strive after as persevere would be a, a similar term as we talked about last week. He says, as he's describing this, this commitment to strive, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. Seems at first like a little bit of a weird transition. You're like, first you're telling us to strive and persevere. And, and how does the, the word of God play into this whole equation? How does it even relate? Three things that I see here ex explained. The first one that I would say as it talks about the word of God in that little section is that the word of God sees our true colors. It sees our true colors. It can see and identify whether our belief is accurate or it's just something that we're putting on. Look at the words. It says, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I like the idea of scripture. Maybe a layman's term of this is the, the, gig, is, oh, the gig is up and you're caught red-handed. That's the idea of scripture. Anything that you thought you were going to hide, when it comes and collides with God's word, you're kind of like, uh, when I look at this and I look at my life, there's just an extreme inconsistency. And if I'm really honest with myself, man, I am not meeting God's perfect standard. I was reading this uh, week about a, a missionary. His name is David Livingston. He was a pioneer missionary, one of the early ones that landed on the continent of Africa. And he offered, as he was engaging with different people, he had offered uh, different people to help them come alongside them and try to teach them to read. And this one particular chief of this tribe, he made that exact same offer. But the chief replied, he said, I, I don't wish to learn to read that book for he was afraid it might change his heart and make him content with only one wife. You see, that's the idea is, is when you're exposed to God's word and you see his standard versus how you're living, it's kind of like a, what it describes here as being naked and exposed. It's kind of graphic language. Naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's the part, if we're honest with ourselves, that so many people want to resist. The idea that at the end of our days, we will give an account for our actions. There's someone that we're answering to. There is a creator. This didn't all just come from nothing. It's not a big explosion. We will give an account for our actions. And truth be told, we don't like that idea because much like that chief of the tribe in Africa, we don't like the idea of submitting my will to his will. We like the idea of being a self-God and kind of doing our own thing with no accountability. But you see, when we actually, when it actually sinks in, 
that Jesus is judge over all. And at some point we will stand before him and give an account for our life and give an account for what I already brought up at the beginning of our message of belief or unbelief in him. Can you imagine that day? looking in the eyes of Jesus Christ and trying to explain that, uh, that, that I didn't want anything to do with your finished work on the cross. I, I know you came and su- lived a perfect life and suffered on that cruel cross, but I didn't want anything to do with that. Can you imagine having that conversation? That's the idea here of giving an account before God. So one, Scripture see, allows us to see our true colors. Two, Scripture is living and active, living. We're reminded here and told that specifically that it is living and active. It kind of uh, recommits what we've already learned elsewhere in scripture. Isaiah 48 says this, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Now that we're a couple thousand years from Jesus's presence here on earth, we start to realize that that statement, there's some truth to it. It's not changing and it's not going anywhere. I found it interesting reading this story. Maybe you've heard it before of a French philosopher. His name is Voltaire. You might even be familiar with him. He lived between 1694 and 1778. And he wrote tons of different articles and different theses trying to make a case that that God didn't exist. And so basically uh, a, a humanist, And in one of his uh, famous quotes in 1776, he was quoted as saying, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by a curiosity seeker. Kind of interesting to hear that from somebody from 1776. And what the irony in response to that is within 50 years after his death, there was an ironic twist because the very house that he lived in and actually even printed some of the materials that he distributed about God was eventually converted to a storehouse for Bibles and gospel tracts by the Evangelical Society of Geneva. And even the printing presses that he used were ultimately used to print Bibles. I was reading just to research that a little bit this week to confirm that that wasn't one of those like made up Christendom stories, but that actually played itself out in history. Pretty awesome to see the word of God does not fade. It's not going anywhere and it's living and active. I like the idea of it being active. I heard or read a definition of that this week. It accomplishes what it is intended to do. Sometimes I talk to people after a a message and they'll say, man, Scott, it felt like that message was just written specifically for me. Like like God was talking directly to me. And I'm like, he was, and it was. Because it is active and it is living and it's wanting to accomplish exactly what God intends it to do if we'll allow for that. If we'll allow it to meet us exactly where we're at. You may have noticed even in my beginning prayer here today that that was my prayer is that God's word would meet you exactly where it's at. It would speak specific to your situation. And that's because I believe it can, that it can meet us exactly where we're at, where we can convict us of sin. It can encourage us for when we're heading the right direction, all the powerful things that it's able to do because it is living and active. Last thing, and we'll close with this. So it's a li- that it's uh, that that scripture sees our true colors. That it's living and active. And third, that scripture cuts right to the heart. Cuts right to the heart. It's the idea that there's really no hiding from God's word. That it's if we're if we're diligent in our our heart upkeep and we come to God's word, then he'll get right to something. If we actually take this seriously, if we actually prioritize this in our week, and he's like, that's something I can work with. That's why every single Sunday we gather and it's kind of like a, a voluntary heart surgery, if you will, every single week. You're, we're, we're lining up to say, all right, God, I want you to pierce right to my heart. And here's the thing to understand is that his piercing is not intended to leave us damaged and, and broken, but it's intended like a master surgeon to promote healing. 
So that on the other side of us, on the other side of it, we're transformed and experience new life. All of these things are intended as part of our exploration of God's word. So just as a a recap of where we've been here so far, I I, I hope that this uh, couple of things in this stand out. First off is the reminder that we had right out of the gates that this invitation to come into his rest is still there. It's not something in the old, olden days back in the Old Testament that used to be an offer that was on the table that somehow we missed that window. Instead, we saw directly that the invitation to experience his rest is still here as long as we still have breath. History has always pointed to it. We've seen that. And today is a fresh opportunity. And here's the last reminder that we saw in this last section as it describes the work that, the, that scripture does in our lives is that nobody sneaks by into his rest. There's one route, only one single route. And that route is through belief. That's the Unbelief, as I mentioned, is the unpardonable sin. But really, what the rest of the, the, the junk that we get tangled up in that, none of that is going to matter if we've embraced Jesus' finished work on the cross. And if we have, it's going to transform the way we live. There's going to be marks of that in our life. We're going to see transformation. We're going to change. We're going to actually model the fact that we've been transformed. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to spend some time in your word and to study this passage. And man, this, as Josh had said a a few weeks back, every single uh, one of these uh, sections is just rich. It's just, it's, it's deep with content. My prayer and my hope is, is that we wouldn't get distracted with trying to uh, figure out maybe some of the uh, smaller aspects of this without uh, recognizing the big picture that you are an amazing God that extends your rest to us today. My prayer and my hope is if there's somebody listening right now that's never taken the time to slow down and, and, and bend a knee and acknowledge their sin before you and embrace your finished work, that this might even be the catalyst for that because we believe what this word says, that, you're, you, uh, that your word pierces straight to our heart and exposes this stuff. And so I pray that we wouldn't resist that that we'd come to that, we'd respond to even that message now. Thank you so much for your grace and your patience. We'll celebrate that now, even in song. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Open wide, blinded eyes, giants fall. at the mention of you. Sinner's chains breaking free, miracles still happening. Waters part, I see mountains move. Sing it out. No
All right, church. Well, thanks so much for being with us online. As always, our invitation, always the invite to text us at 97,000 with any prayer requests, any concerns, things going on in your life, or just reach out to the church office. We are always thrilled to try to be a support and a blessing in any way that we can. Have an amazing week.